This episode of the Good Ship Brothership is brought to you by Baby Cakes. Need a pet name to impress a stranger at a bar? Try Baby Cakes. Need an insult to belittle your friend with? Once again, the Good Ship Brothership recommends Baby Cakes. Baby Cakes, the official pet name of the Good Ship Brothership. What's the ratio that you use? I don't know. Okay. I just eyeball it. <laughs> like everything else in life. <laughs> this ass. Stop. Grant's allergies have been really acting up in a way that is not okay. And uh, so we apologize in advance if he's going to be debilitated by coughing and sneezing and overall... Uh, congestion, who, but we're gonna soldier on. Who has like ragweed induced <laughs> coughing? I like <laughs> it, feels like I have asthma. Maybe, if, and do. I've never even had asthma, but this is what I imagine asthma would feel like. Try Hannah's puffer. <laughs> I wish I had it right now. I'm just, I'm just trying a little wee bit of this <laughs> to see how we're doing. <laughs> Go for um, it. I'll be dead before. We get to the Gabber Jabber. So, welcome to episode 30 of the Good yeah, Ship Brothership. Yeah, episode 30. We're celebrating. Um, <laughs> not, not really. really. Not really. <laughs> um, what have you been consuming recently other than allergies? Because um, I have a lot to talk about. I really do. <laughs> I know, which is good because I really don't. Like, I've even been stalled on reading Hemingway. I'm a little over halfway through A Farewell to Arms. But I just haven't really had any time. I've more than anything I've been writing um, lately, which which is obviously good. But just been writing a lot, <laughs> acquiring typewriters, and uh, and doing research on repairing and modding them and that sort of thing. I I do kind of want to um, recover the platen roller on that brother i think i will do red because it will look cool with the with the blue color mm-hmm. <clears throat> i think maybe i think it will i think what it do you look think? like a small sports car what do you think your writing output is in like a typical like two hours in a typical two hours like what are we going by like words or pages is probably the easiest pages? thing to do um i'd say if i was sitting down completely uninterrupted and like with decent like not even ideal, but decent circumstances, I'd say I'd get four pages. That's pretty good. So this is a very small font. And yeah, it's it's a lot of words on a page for a typewriter. Definitely. And when I'm using a computer, it's like significantly reduced less. Yeah, because I'm just editing while I write. Mm-hmm. So it will be interesting. I I uh, I don't know if my writing will be way better or worse or the same for using typewriters mm-hmm. instead of a computer. All I know is that my output is greatly, has been hugely increased. Like, just for example, I figure that one of these pages is probably worth two. Mm-hmm. And for this, which is part of um, a novel that I'm working on. He's holding up a manuscript. <clears throat> I have done 15 pages on that, and I can't remember exactly when I started. 
That's like thirty doing pages this. on a normal novel, probably. I think I think I started doing this on the August long weekend. So that's really good. That is like a a page a day on average, and yeah. you certainly don't get to write every single day. No, not at all. But yeah, so I've been kind of flying through my writing, and then also been working on um, another one of the intertwining narratives that will be in that novel. <clears throat> Do our levels look low real quick? Um, I don't think that they are. I can turn it up. I'll nudge it up a little bit. Just a bit. I don't think that it's really All right. unusual. <clears throat> That's maybe a little high. <laughs> it's just going to be the loudest throat clearing in history. <clears throat> so I've actually been very busy. I've been really enjoying this um, renaissance period in my life for games. I've been, as I said last episode, I've kind of stepped away from the games world for many months as as you do when life's responsibilities kind of ramp up for a little while um but i've started to be able to get back into it a little bit more i've since finished middle earth shadow of mordor which we talked about last episode a little bit um such a weird super disappointing ending it's a bizarre i've never played a game before i don't think in my entire life with really? tremendous <laughs> voice acting and such a bad like story and like the boss does the boss fights were worse than almost any decent game i've ever played it was astounding that they could come up with a fight that was that bad especially when the combat in the game is so much fun most of the time is bizarre Hmm. um like it's it's just it's just a, a strange thing um but then after that we downloaded um and immediately got into or i did guacamelee 2 i don't know i'm sure the original guacamelee has come up at some point on this podcast it's one of my favorite games of all time it's a metroidvania style game which for those of you who don't know it's like a 2d platformer slash you know side scrolling like like mario yeah like mario with elements that are kind of like a beat-em-up like an arcade game but a little bit more nuanced maybe um and you kind of explore on your own terms a little bit and unlock new powers and abilities that allow you to progress further into this world. And the game's just, like, like absolutely superlative. Like, the original Guacamelee was stunning to begin with. And there's a certain purity to it that this sequel, which is newly released, doesn't have, I don't think. But in many ways, it's also expanded and improved on the original. And I think, overall, it's probably a... At worst, it's a very fitting sequel, and at best, it's a definite improvement. The the art style, if I may, is very much... <clears throat> it's very colorful. It's got that kind of... It, what is it? Dia de los Muertos? The Day of the Dead. Day yeah. of the Dead kind of like um, skull Mexican kind of thing going mm-hmm. on. And utilizes like hard lines and shapes. A lot of yeah. like the characters are composed of like Lots shapes. Lots of contrast. And, yeah, it's a beautiful looking game uh, to watch. And so smartly written, it's hilarious. Some mm-hmm. of the little insights they have. Um, it's very cool to me, though, that just seeing, like, within a side-scroller, without... <clears throat> using the purity of the side-scroller as, like, one of the older forms of video games, mm-hmm. one of the oldest forms of video games, um, and one of the most readily identifiable... <clears throat> What you can do to make it look interesting and fresh and and current, yeah, using just the art style. Very modern. It doesn't look like something that would have been made ten years ago. It doesn't look like it's trying to be retro. 
No, and it's not <clears throat> in a lot of ways. It's a very no, a, it's really not a very modern take on a relatively old idea for the medium. So I've uh, actually finished the story for that already. It's a a relatively short game, but I need to go back and I'm gonna gonna see all there is to see in that game for sure. So that's gonna keep me busy for quite some time. Um, additionally, I've been I've been listening to lots of different music. I don't know if Alex and the Astronaut has come up on here before. Um, it's a an indie artist um, who I've really been enjoying. I just found on like a Spotify playlist, which is really weird for me because I almost never use playlists. I think it came up because I had the free feature and it like wouldn't let me keep listening to whatever I was trying to listen to. I've really been enjoying it. It's one of those things I've been listening to both of her EPs, both of Alex's EPs, and they're both really nice and really unique and like a breath of fresh air and just a perfect, perfect summer soundtrack. And I'm under no illusions really that it's, that they're any better than like eight out of 10 records and maybe they're not that good, but somehow it just really hits the spot, like quenches my thirst and has for, um, the last couple months as just like, I'm driving to and from work. Like I, I've been playing these two EPs absolutely to death. Because there's just been something about them that's been, like, extremely satisfying. <laughs> um, and certainly certainly she has her own sound and an interesting perspective and good writing. And there's a lot going for them. But, yeah, I don't know. I've, just, I've been playing those on repeat a lot. I've been listening to a weird hodgepodge of Young Americans by David Bowie and In Humor and Sadness by 68. That's such a good record. <laughs> I know. It's one of those ones that... I threw back on... Oh, and Carry Fire by Robert Plant. Yeah. Which was released last year? That's great. Yeah. And it was one of those things I... <coughs> I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to listen to. I normally take a couple CDs with me in my car as I drive to work and do other things. And just to go through and and listen to stuff. And I at this point, I've got a significant enough collection of CDs that I'm kind of always going back to things and being surprised by them again. But I took the Robert Plant album, threw it in, and instantly when it started playing, <clears throat> it was like a time machine warped me back to this past winter when I first got it and was listening to it. Right. And I really haven't listened to that record since. I like really heavily listened to it in the winter and like maybe very early spring. And it was just such a weird, like, I think it was even right around the time I got my car. I'm pretty sure I was listening to it. One of the times I left the dealership and drove home or something like that mm. for the first time. It was just very, it just, music can do that so much. It just soaks up the time and place that you're hearing it in and and can just fire it right back at you months later. That's really, I'm so glad you mentioned or years. that. years. I'm so glad you mentioned that because nostalgia, at least for me, is something that's going to play really prevalently into this episode. Um as we review a movie that I'd never seen before and an album that I'd never heard before, it's amazing how kind of the um, the power of of the past can really like influence your experience with something that is actually altogether new. Just um, yeah, as we'll see with especially my review of of the album that we're going to talk about, and I guess we should roll the music and get into it. Um, yeah. Once you've heard an episode in a in a special place, it stays with you forever. Speaking of which, <laughs> it's worth mentioning that I listened to our last episode, 
And usually I don't listen to our episodes. I probably listen to like five or six of them in total. Um, whatever we were eating. Oh, we were eating the candies, right? <laughs> what? What were we eating last, last episode? week? Yeah. It chips. Was chips? Chip. Was no pretzels. Pretzels. Okay. <laughs> so I listened to the episode. I'm so sorry. It was so. I texted Grant. Yeah, you we were, literally. We were both at work. I texted him and I was like, "That was the pretzels was a huge mistake." So we didn't forego snack food, but instead of pretzels, we have some soft black licorice, <laughs> gluten-free, organic black licorice. So that's how we roll on the Good Ship Brothership, which is the only arts podcast to cover film, music, gaming, literature, and Ancestry.ca. <laughs> uh, I'm Grant, and this is my brother Jason. Hello. Jason, what are we talking about today? Please tell me. Today we're talking about... For, for everybody who hasn't read the, the title of the yeah. episode that they're listening to. Well, it's all part of the experience. Yeah, I know. Today we are talking about the 2018 album, although it's a little stale at this point. All the things that I did and all the things that I'll never do by the Milk Carton Kids. And the, I believe it's a 2017 mm-hmm. film, uh, Phantom Thread, produced by Daniel Day-Lewis, no, who is the same, or, what did it say? Written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Sorry. I thought you were calling me out because he didn't produce it. Then I realized that I just said the wrong name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I misspoke. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis is the same... Um, visionary behind the film that we talked about on the last episode, which was Punch Drunk Love. And next episode, I believe, we we're talking about Magnolia, which is yet another one of his films. So kind of like a, a mini quasi-series of Daniel Day-Lewis films. For those of you who listened to last week's episode, we thank you very much. It was really, <laughs> really sweet to see people um, get excited to have us come back. And it's really exciting to be back just because... I don't know. It's cool that people like hearing us chat. It's not something that you really expect, um, but you guys really seem to enjoy the last one, so hopefully you enjoy this as well. And we also really enjoy the movie we talked about last week, Punch Drunk Love, so it'll be interesting to see what we think of this completely different film. And it is completely different, even though it shares maybe some of the same themes. Also, we should, uh, should flag the fact that we are now on Instagram. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Those of you who haven't followed us, we are at at brothership.pod, and we've gotten a decent amount of followers, I think. Like 35. We're pretty, yeah, we're pretty much on par for who we're following, though, which is kind of impressive. Huh? We just followed a bunch of friends and that sort of thing, but really uh, enjoying the kind of interaction we can have over there and the kind of conversations we can have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we should open that up as well to if anybody has reviews or suggestions or anything, message them to us on there. If you don't feel like emailing us at uh, the good ship brothership at gmail.com. If you don't feel like doing that, then you can just completely um, shoot a message to our Instagram account and and connect with us over there. So anyway, we're reviewing these two things. It's time to flip the puppet. Flip the puppet to determine the show order. So I think face down would be Phantom Thread. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Of course. What what, other... what else would you do? Yeah. Face, I mean, face up. I mean, please. The puppet okay. has landed face down, so we'll be discussing the Phantom, Phantom Thread. Thread. Do you want to start this one? Because I would like to start the milk carton kids topic. Sure, of course. Okay. Get my Wikipedia hmm. page up here. I don't. Indeed. I can't find a Wikipedia page for um, 
the milk carton because all the things we can just make some stuff up sure so the background for this and we've seen we've each seen a few paul thomas anderson movies grant had seen this movie prior to watching it to review it so you've seen it probably three times now i think and Um, i twice twice and i have seen it kind of like one and a half times i really gave it like a very thorough watch as i always do and then the next day grant watched it so i kind of watched it as i maybe did some other stuff as well phantom thread is a 2017 american period drama film (laughs) hold on let me let me run into that again (laughs) phantom thread is a 2017 american period drama film i do not like that sentence written and directed by paul thomas anderson set in london's couture world in 1954 it stars Daniel Day-Lewis as a couturier, wow, who takes a young waitress, played by Vicky Kripes, Kripes, as his muse. It is reportedly Daniel Day-Lewis's final role before retiring. Okay, whatever. <laughs> we'll you, see. You bag Maybe for five threats. or ten years, though. Yeah, well, yeah. Could be. The film is the first Anderson film shot outside of the United States. Interesting. With principal photography beginning... January 2017, in Live, England, is Anderson's second collaboration with Daniel Day-Lewis, following There Will Be Blood, and his fourth with composer Johnny Greenwood. Oh, yes. Phantom Thread premiered in New York City (laughs) December 11th, 2017, and was released in the United States on December 25th, 2017. The film received praise for its acting, screenplay, direction, musical score, and production values. It was chosen by the National Board of Review as one of the top 10 films of 2017. At the 90th Academy Awards, the film earned six nominations, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Day-Lewis, Supporting Actress for Leslie Manville, and Best Original Score, and one for Best Costume Design. It earned four nominations at the 71st British Academy Film Awards, winning for Best Costume Design, and received two Golden Globe nominations. Let me just get serious here. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to point out that uh, the fact that we are backed massively in a financial way by Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead Radiohead, will in no way influence our review. Yeah. Um, As a lot of you know, they have paid for our house and they paid for our schooling as well. There's a luxuriant recording loft that we we craft these episodes. In downtown Manhattan. Yeah. Um, But despite that, and despite his involvement in the film, our reviews will be completely and utterly unbiased so i i guess that i would classify myself as somewhat of a paul thomas anderson fanboy of course he was one of the he's he is and has been the writer director who kind of snuck up on me i didn't try to be really into him like the way i tried to be really into tarantino when i was edgy and 19 how'd that work or i got over it we got to do a Tarantino discussion We're going someday. to. Uh, we'll get into that idea at the end of the podcast. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. We have some show ideas we want to run by you guys. Anyway, or the way I tried to get into the Coens mm-hmm. and like um, dove into their catalog and <clears throat> watched everything they ever made, pretty much. Not actually. Yeah. I'm missing like two. Hudsucker Proxy and Burn After Reading. But um, after seeing The Big Lebowski, was just amazed. But Paul Thomas Anderson's first film that I ever saw was Inherent Vice, which is a Thomas Pynchon novel. Which I've still never that seen. he adapted. It stars Joaquin Phoenix. And I watched it and was like that, like, that was funny. It was weird. It looked good. I think the acting was good. Mostly it was just weird. 
And then I just kind of forgot about it. I think I knew that Paul Thomas Anderson had made it, but I wasn't really, you know, cognizant of of, uh, his back catalog. And then slowly I saw Punch Drunk Love. Um, There will be blood. No, no, no. There will be blood. And then I saw Punch Drunk Love. And then I purchased Magnolia because I'd heard good things. And then Phantom Thread came out. And then I purchased that as well. So, and I've enjoyed all of his films. Um, up until this point, I definitely had enjoyed everything that I saw. Um, the so to get into Phantom Thread itself, um, I'm not sure. I can't confirm off the top of my head if it, it was shot on film. I think it. I believe it. From <clears> the <throat> shots, you were watching behind the scenes stuff, and they were using film cameras really? for sure. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's not to say we'll hundred percent. That that's not to say hundred percent. Yeah. It was with film, no, no. but it was certainly used. But used it film. looks. It has a filmic quality. Very to much. It. So. Very much so beautiful colors i think we both agree on of course that. yeah um there's just a warmth to the colors as well this like you can almost feel and that's a very important thing it's a it's a film a lot of it's about style and fashion and and you can almost feel the textures of the fabrics um that he's working with and the colors the colors really pop it's not one of those <clears throat> 1950s films where everything looks kind of faded everything is kind of vibrant but it's it's vibrant in kind of like a a subtle way um and i I don't think that paul thomas anderson as a filmmaker and writer really has has his own lens that he works with like say kubrick or tarantino where you watch a scene and you go yes that's clearly kubrick that's clearly tarantino paul thomas anderson has more of like a tint that he applies to to his you know to his films he he really changes up his style in cinematography and in writing I mean, I don't I want to give credit where credit's due as well <laughs> to like he's not necessarily the one behind the camera like there's No but he was for a lot of it Who's his do you know who is the uh, uh the, the DA chief? yeah or DP sorry yeah um because yeah, he's, whoever's the DP is phenomenal, and I think he has worked with the same couple people fairly consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Um, for there will be blood and punch drunk love, as well as this movie, the visuals are like a massive standout and almost, almost a reason to watch the film in of itself, if not for their other strengths as well. I'm pretty sure that yeah, it's it is Paul Thomas Anderson. Really? Who's the director of photography? Because wow. I watched one, and they're like, "Who who's the director of photography?" And he's like, "We didn't really have one. It was kind of just mostly." Oh, me. that was for There Will Be Blood, right? I, I don't know, maybe, but yeah. but he, you know, yeah, um, I, yeah. I think I think that it's, it was a very collaborative. Um, <clears throat> let's see, it's finally revealed. Mm-hmm. Blah 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 blah. Uh, it's not your stand. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I derailed this. This is fine. We have to. Wow, that was a big whistle you had in your side. <laughs> I wonder if the microphone will pick it up. I can whistle with my throat. Okay, forget it. I'm gonna say that there was no DP. It was a collaborative effort because I know right. he's worked that fashion in the past. But regardless, the this film looks looks gorgeous. Um. <clears throat> And I think we'd both agree his his films, although you've only seen three, I've seen like five. Right. They differ tremendously. 
Yeah. Just in the way they're shot, he really, he really, I think, tries very hard to suit the story. And the way his writing shifts, too. Like, think about the yeah. dialogue. In a Tarantino movie, and Mark Kermode, the film critic, um, kind of, like, opened my eyes to this. Everybody <laughs> talks the same. Everybody talks like Quentin Tarantino. Everybody talks the same. Yeah. And once you notice that, you can't unnotice it. I think that's a slight exaggeration, but... But well, every everybody has a few too many one-liners. Everybody's a few a bit too verbose. Everybody has the same like, kind of like like scholarly gangsta way of speaking that just kind of gets. Eh. Yeah, I mean, like, and you could also argue that there's an inherent campiness in Tarantino's films that's intentional. I'm not sure it's intentional, but regardless, there's certainly uh, a point anyway, to be made there. Yeah, let's get off of the Tarantino thing, please. Um, so in continuing with the film, the costumes, which mm-hmm. it won awards for, are are completely beyond reproach. Obviously, as as are the sets. There, there is no point in this film where your immersion breaks, where you where you go, oh yeah, those are actors. Oh yeah, this was made in twenty seventeen. I found there. I mostly agree with you, but there's one spot, and I don't know if this if you noticed this or if it bothered you. There are a couple scenes where he's driving in his very cool uh, Bristol saloon car, which is a beautiful car. Um, and they use a GoPro that was mounted up and back from the rear, like from the the trunk of the car uh-huh. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's looking this, looking over the car. Yeah, and it's this very wide angle and this very odd <clears throat> perspective. And the two times it was used in the film, it really just immediately pulled me out. And it, I thought it was a real shame. It's a minor thing, but still definitely pulled me out of the viewing experience. You haven't seen Clockwork Orange yet. No, not yet. Um, there are many scenes in Clockwork Orange, which I don't know if, if PTA's nodding to them when he does those shots, but like obviously he's aware of them. Yeah. But in Clockwork Orange, the characters race through the countryside in this car... And it's very clearly like a projection that's behind them, which is kind of funny. Right. Like how they used to do that. Casablanca. And yeah, and the car is like on some sort of suspension thing that kind of like jiggles it a little Mm -hmm. bit. And they're like, oh, and like seesawing the steering wheel back and forth and all. But but that's in um, Clockwork Orange. Kind of breaks up the film with these frenetic driving I just found it didn't fit. Like most of the rest of the film was not frenetic in nature. We'll get into that. Okay. Well, I was just—you said yeah. immersion breaking, so I'm but I don't. But here. but in terms of period correctness, Certainly. in terms yeah. of like, yeah, absolutely. You never ever will look at this and go, "Oh wow, this, this is not the '50s. This mm-hmm. was made in 2017." It is incredible how beautiful the costumes are, oh, and yeah. even even like just the clothing he wears, um, Reynolds Woodcock, which He's is a very Daniel, Daniel Day Lewis's character, who's a fashion designer and like a dressmaker. Um, jo- Johnny Greenwood, who did the score, I mean. <laughs> if you're at all familiar with Radiohead, uh, whether or not you like them, you really do owe it to yourself to check these, check out the movies that are have been scored by. Or certainly check out his Greenwood. soundtrack or something yeah. else. It's a, a but, beautiful piece of work with or without the film. Johnny Greenwood has this kind of swooping, swooning at times and at other times kind of like staccato and tension building. Uh, um score that run through 70 percent of the film which is huge it's almost it's pretty much constant music throughout the entire movie which 
sounds kind of annoying when you first hear that, I think. You go like, oh, like it's just, it's a quiet, it's a silent movie, or I'm not going to be able to hear what people are saying. It's going to clash with the dialogue. It's unbelievable how well this soundtrack marries with the dialogue and how comfortably the two ride in tandem. I think of a scene where Reynolds Woodcock early on is wooing the waitress mm-hmm. who will become his his lover and there's just the the current it's a like it's, it's like a current um a little bit similar to how punch drunk love of, had that kind of underlying <clears throat> but punch drunk love soundtrack jumps in and out right. this is a constant it's uh, the best way i can think of to describe it is a current and in a film where the dialogue wow that's he's holding up two completely different sizes this is a really fat piece of licorice this is a this is a big moment for us in a film where um, the dialogue is segmented, like it's it's um, it can be few and far between, mm-hmm. and the conversations are brittle and sharp and uh, acidic in their tone, oftentimes the the score is essential to balancing it out and carrying you from one piece of dialogue to the next, and uh, providing a motion to the scenes. I think. And also, it's beautiful and lush and orchestral and very kind of 50s. And, and it kind of reflects the story, too, which is told not in, not in like, pivoting plot points or anything like that, but it's in, like, hues. Mm-hmm. It's in shades. It's in, like, the way a party's going on and somebody's sitting at a table with a blank, distressed look on their face, Right. And uh, the unexplained, quiet revelations, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and in the first half, we have these slow kind of waltzing scenes that just kind of like play out mm-hmm. until they feel like they've reached their natural conclusion. And then they are cut by these frenetic driving scenes, which I I find quite interesting, actually, because because... Reynolds, the main character, seems to be somebody who moves so slowly, and so he's got great energy and great stamina. And he's drive, a very graceful character, but he's very graceful. And then when he drives, it's the complete opposite. It's like he's letting something out. It's mm-hmm. like this inner cathartic like, release, distress or rage almost, or and he just rockets through like the woods in his car, and that. <clears throat> camera looking down on the car and like shaking it's ve- it is very jarring i agree but i think that it it shows you what's going on beneath the surface because it's really the only time you see him alone without people yeah that's around true. him it's the only time you see him by himself and i think that those scenes could be more of a reflection of of him yeah. Than they are of just oh he's going to their country cottage or that sort of thing. <clears throat> so I I enjoy those driving scenes. I think that they're kind of uh, uh, essential. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's dialogue is superior to almost any other dialogue. Even even the Coen Brothers who kill dialogue stone dead. They still, at the end of the day, kind of sound like the Coen Brothers. At the end of the day, they're masters of conversation. That's yeah, what they, they do really more are. so than. Not that they're not good at storytelling, they're fantastic, but their their uh, strong suit is certainly uh, conversation. And I mean, they they the Coens are really great. Now that I'm thinking about it, I, that's kind of unfair because 
<clears throat> you watch Fargo and you hear the borderline Canadian Marge. accent. I'm thinking of I'm thinking of when the cop goes to talk to the to the townsperson who's got the hood that's pulled like way over yeah, his face. He's and clearing snow. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like shoveling like water out of his yeah. driveway or something stupid. No, he's sweeping. <laughs> But contrast that to, to the, Big like, <laughs> the Big Lebowski or Miller's Crossing. Yes. With the gangsters. I was talking about Miller's Crossing today. <laughs> That's a really good movie. I know. Um, but anyway, they still kind of have that Coen Brothers um, flair <laughs> to the things they write. Excuse me. Jeez. Paul Thomas Anderson really does disappear from Adam Sandler, who's incredibly awkward. Barry, his character. Very awkward in... Um, in uh <laughs> what movie is he in punch drunk love sorry i was just gonna leave that <laughs> to tom cruise who's this incredibly um charismatic but like sweary and narcissistic motivational speaker in magnolia to oh i did see this, part of that actually yeah part to, of magnolia. <laughs> to to this film phantom thread where everybody's very british and very formal and they are very reserved, but they're very cutting and acidic with the way they talk to each other. It, he really does disappear when he writes. Certainly, yeah. He, his voice is spent serving these characters. Um, but, you know, in speaking about writing, there's a periodic kind of narration and past tense. I'm not sure that it works as well as it might. <laughs> I think it does work, but I'm not quite sure what the point of it is the issue with, that i saw with it was that i think he didn't lean heavily enough into it it was this awkward yeah, exactly. middle ground where it would be a segment of this narration by alma his, who's his muse um and then five or ten minutes later she'd be back with another sentence or two and then, then 20 be like, minutes then be like or 45 yeah and so, I think it was an interesting premise, but I'm not sure it worked as well as it may have yeah. if he had leaned into it a little bit more heavily. Well, it felt like he kept forgetting about it, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Like, forgetting that, uh... <coughs> oh yeah, I'm supposed to be doing this past tense narration. Exactly, yeah. I better get back to that. Um, in terms of acting, <coughs> Daniel Day-Lewis is, like, and I know I, I've talked about this to you a lot, so this is old hat to you, but for those listening, it might not be. Somebody like Christian Bale, who does these, he's famous for body transformation roles. Other actors are also famous for body transformation roles. They can't touch Daniel Day-Lewis because no matter how much weight you gain, how much weight you lose, what you do with your hair, Daniel Day-Lewis is in full control of all of his, all of all of the motions which we consider subconscious. The way he holds his face, the way he squints his eyes, the way he moves his eyes, the way he holds his mouth, the way he sets his jaw, the creases in his forehead, on his face, the way his posture changes. Every role is different. And I've seen him in quite a few. I've seen him in Last of the Mohicans. I've seen him in um, American, what's it called? Gangs of New York. I've seen him in Punch Drunk. Oh, there Will Be Blood. I've seen him in There Will Be Blood. My movie references are going out the window now. And I've seen him in Phantom Threat. And in every single film, he holds himself completely differently. Last of Mohicans, he's a half-Indian-like warrior 
kind of prince dude with long flowing black hair, mm-hmm. which he rocks, by the way. He would rock anything. And he's so fleet of foot, and he's so light, and he's so athletic and lean and muscular and va- valiant. Va- valiant? Mm-hmm. And valiant. And then in Gangs of New York, he's this mustachioed Bill the Butcher. So and he walks with this kind of like hunched sort of aggression in him and speaks with a New York accent, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And then in There Will Be Blood, he's this charismatic oil man who walks with kind of a weird limp because he broke his leg. Mm-hmm. And and has this kind of like, he speaks as though he always thinks he's being recorded or like listened to or something. Very oratory. <clears throat> and in this, he's this kind of like languid, lounging, spoiled fashion designer who looks like at any moment he's thinking about, you know... How would everybody react if I had a meltdown right now? And one of the most telling uh, traits about his character, and I love it so much, is as he has his, like, extremely slow-paced breakfast where he, like, takes a bite of crumpet every couple minutes and stuff like that. Two of the other characters start to get into, like, a confrontation, he says, and he's like, I don't have time for a confrontation. He's like, we can't do this. It uses up too much energy. It uses up too much energy. Meanwhile, he's just like sitting there doing nothing. Like he's sketching. He's sketching. Yeah. He's sketching a fast thing. And then later on, he's like going out for these big walks every day just to like hang out. It's like he, he, I mean, certainly he's a a fashion genius, but he's also an absolute like uh, bohemian man. (laughs) Well, we'll get into that. But his character would be ungrounded and will feel um it would feel like why why is anybody indulging this guy if we didn't have leslie manville as cyril his sister so good phenomenal who is kind of halfway between him his kind of impetuous temperamental uh tantrum throwing self and everybody else yeah she is kind of she's kind of cold and kind of like you're kind of afraid of her, but at the same time, you can kind of relate to her and she, she feels kind of reasonable. She kind of extends the olive <clears throat> branch to Alma in a number yeah. of situations. Well, she says she likes her. Yeah, shows some humanity more so than. Uh... And f- because of her, she ties. It's genius. It's genius writing. She ties Reynold, the character of Reynolds Woodcock, Daniel Day Lewis, to everybody else. She bridges it. Mm-hmm. makes him more believable, makes everybody else more believable, and makes the relationship between Reynolds and everybody else more believable. Right? Right. It's really nicely done. She kills it with the acting. Yeah, oh yeah. She Her, is Talk about good facial expressions and glances and stuff <laughs> like that. She's, I would be so scared of her. <laughs> yeah, and you and you know that she she could, you know, take down... She absolutely shuts him down on a number of yeah, occasions. Yeah, she says, where you know, don't start would. a fight with me. You know you can't win it. I'll leave you on the floor. I'll go right through you and leave you on the floor. She says something like that. And he literally just stops. Yeah. He, he just gives up. I don't know if she's his older sister or his younger sister, but she is like, she's awesome. And, and that seeing him getting shut down is kind of interesting because it's part of, <clears throat> and I'm not going to go into big detail here, but it's part of us kind of starting to suspect that he might not be the affluent fashion genius we think he is. We learn that somebody else is paying for the house they're living in. And uh, and somebody says that, you know, he's not designing things that are chic or fashionable. His sister says that. 
people mm-hmm. are leaving and not getting dresses designed by him because they want things that are chic. Because he desires this timeless <clears throat> elegance and artistic integrity over the uh, vogue or the fashion yeah, of the day. It, yeah. He wants to be true to his artistic vision, um, although it seems to be coming like at the cost of a substantial amount of business for him. But it's just, it's very interesting to um, to just see that play out, and then you, at a certain point, you just it's again like everything else. It's just subtle. You go, oh, maybe, maybe you know he's not, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that was I think that's really done, well done. Also, quick shout out editing in this film. Great mm-hmm. editing doesn't get enough love in films because, that's because good, good editing, editing is editing that you, you don't, don't notice. notice. Oh, well I knew that what was you were delightful. Say. Yeah, the oh, best edit- the, the best editing is absolutely subliminal but, in most <clears throat> cases, not always. But in this film. I don't know if you'd agree with me. I want your take on this particular edit that I rewound so you'd see it. Right, yeah. There's one edit don't in this film. Don't spoil what happens, though. Definitely not. There's one beautiful, sublime, perfect edit in this film that you do notice. And it's because you notice it that you go, oh, something, something's not right It's here. just a jarring, and it's, it's an indicator just, that something's off. It's just jarring enough. It's just bold enough. It's just awkward enough that it works. And it, you know, it definitely doesn't overstep the boundaries of artistic taste. It's not like Paul Thomas Anderson going, oh, check this out. Yeah, you thought that was wild? It's very, very subtle. Mm -hmm. It's very controlled. And it just, it's it's a beautiful indicator for, and a a mood setter. And I love that. Overall, I'd say this, I'd say the film probably is overlong. Uh, though the story might demand that, like I said, the story kind of wanders and it's told in these hues. And you and think it's slow. one of those things that requires like a, a build? It, it, it almost has inherently to has to be long. It kind of has to unfold. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it, it really couldn't be done any other way because especially the the characters are themselves are languid and the life they lead is kind of just luxurious and they're not going to speed up just for the purpose of advancing the narration. Exactly, it, it would feel weird. To to lead to meet these characters leading kind of a slow life and tell it in a fast pace. Um, it, it, the narrative is strange, but I think it is a powerful story. Um, of of love and sacrifice and selfishness and and all sorts of strange things that I I don't want to. It's it would be kind of a it would be kind of a hard story to spoil, I think. But at the same time. No, you could you spoil could it. you could spoil it, and I I really think that it is worth a watch, especially if you like Victorian kind of romances and that sort of thing. And I tend not to, right? But I found this one to be very interesting and very weird and interesting. And this it's, isn't even Victorian; right? <clears throat> it's in the nineteen fifties. Yeah, but but that kind of like like it is know, that kind of aesthetic, swooning, uh, grandiose, mm-hmm. languid kind of uh, buttoned storytelling. Up. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like it. Do I think it's Paul Thomas Anderson's best movie? No. But it's beautiful, and it's just something you kind of sink into. And it feels very much like a factor of its time. In some ways, it feels like it's older than it is. And I think that it's I think that it's timeless. It's certainly timeless, yeah. Yeah. There's very little you could point to that would date it um, in either a positive or a negative way. Yeah. Anyway, please go ahead. <laughs> That was really long. I know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's like 23 minutes. I had a lot. 
Okay, well, that was, that was Hello, completely everybody. my fault. I completely bumped the space bar as I went to itch my, itch my forearm. I'm sorry my review is very long, but yeah, anyway. End of the day, he's done. On to happier times. <clears throat> yeah. So I'll try and, I'll try and uh, skim over the things that you already talked about, as we usually do. I wish I could talk more just to reinforce the point, but I won't, I won't belabor it either, about how good Danny Boy's performance is. It really, like, he does elevate acting and performance to almost another level, to, to the point where it almost seems like a, a different thing than what you see a lot of people doing in movies. Um, he's so involving and so convincing. Honestly, I think the same can be said of Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love was also a phenomenal performance, but very different. Maybe, maybe more intentionally, unintentionally phenomenal. Yeah, exactly, right. Um, Character-wise, it's full of like interesting characters. Like, like Cyril and Alma are both very interesting, certainly not these blank canvases like what you see with some... Or archetypes. Yeah, or archetypes. They both kind of adhere to the mold in certain ways and break it in others, which I think makes them really interesting. All the way down to that one random dude that they're having dinner with the one time. These two young ladies stop and say like to, to Reynolds that one day this lady dreams of being able to wear his dress. And then as they leave, he turns to the one guy and he's like, you just dig up the body to sell the dress. And just like his she, mannerisms the, or whatever. The, the girl who st- stops to speak to him says... She wants to be buried. Right. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And then, uh, yeah, when she leaves, Reynolds turns to like the dining partner and says like, you dig her up and try and sell it. And the guy's just like, well, one book can try or whatever. But just like the way he says it, his mannerisms, like Mm -hmm. he instantly has a character. He's not just like a, an extra who's closer to the camera. And I think that's really commendable that you have somebody with like Mm -hmm. two lines in the entire film who seems like you already know them to an extent or, or, you know, something about them at least. Um, I found, especially the beginning, this is just an anecdotal, an observation, especially at the beginning of the movie, I thought it was really hard to hear the dialogue. I had it really? turned up quite loud and there was nothing going on. I used subtitles for like the first half of the movie and really? then I, I switched to, uh, I switched to headphones afterwards and that was much easier. I don't know if that was me. That's not a knock against the film, but I just noticed initially, it, I think it was something to do with the soundtrack perhaps distracted from it um but either way i found it very distracting we already talked about the gopro driving shots um there's one scene that i found really jarring this is another just observation although this one did bother me i even have the time code here they're driving in the car at night at one point and it's a shot of them talking in it and the cabin light is on and like nobody would have the light on while they're just like driving through a dark forest road and i'm like (laughs) this that. that completely broke the immersion for me Interesting. Um, although certainly not something that would that would ruin the film. Driving scenes in movies are always garbage. Usually, mostly, I know that I've complained about it in two different ways. When when the GoPro shots were axed and the light wasn't on in that one scene, I did like it very much. They focused on kind of the ways that the characters were looking at each other, um, and you know the sounds and the feeling, and I think that did it was executed very well. Um. Another observation, just in terms of... I have a few kind of mechanical observations of the film. Split lighting is a technique where um, one side of a face is dark and one side of a face is very light. So picture maybe if if you're sitting in a relatively dark room, but there's a light directly to your right or directly to your left. And it can be used in photography or cinematography. And he uses it to great effect very, very frequently throughout the whole film. 
usually whenever there's a conflict or a tension, both of the characters in the conflict will have a split lighting while a third kind of impartial party might have more of a butterfly lighting, like something that's more uh, conventional and flattering. <laughs> I thought that was just a really interesting technique, something I've never seen before to that extent. Like certainly split lighting is inherently dramatic, but I just thought that was a cool touch and uh, not something you could get away with in multiple films, but for once it kind of worked. You doing okay there, buddy? <laughs> I'm doing okay. I'm just trying not to hack up a lung mm. in the mic. Um, <coughs> the the movie also did a really good job, and this was highly intentional. And it's not like it's not a wild observation by any stretch um, of drawing attention to characters making a lot of noise, or when noise is, or when <laughs> noise would be noticeable. Which is crazy for a film with seventy percent of a score. Yes and no, though, because when the, <laughs> like in all those scenes, the score drops out, which makes ambient noise um, much more noticeable, right? <laughs> That's true. There's one scene where the characters are making breakfast, and uh, Reynolds does not like movement during his breakfast, and Alma's just being totally reasonable. She's trying to butter her toast and pour tea, but the way <laughs> but... they have it mic'd, it's so annoying and so yeah, because you're sitting Whoa. there going like, "Oh my word, can you please stop buttering your toast?" Exactly. So. so... <laughs> you know, ferocious. And this leads to just like a, a a bickering match between them kind of thing. And there are a couple other in- instances where you hear so much ambient noise when it's supposed to be like a quiet scene. And I think that was just very commendable. Um, on some negatives though. There's one scene where um, Alma is watching Reynolds eat and it takes like at least a minute and a half of just her sitting there watching him eat and him like Okay, I'm gonna take the the plate. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut. I'm gonna chew it. Okay, and it's, but that I understand <clears throat> that maybe they're like they're spending time together and they would be watching each other or whatever. <clears throat> what were you gonna say? That's completely. That's totally not how I read that scene. That scene to me is like rife with tension. Does he know or doesn't he? Yeah, but at the same time, I just felt like it went on too long to the point where. You're just belaboring the rest of the film, I thought. I understand drawing out a, a, a portion like that, but perhaps like a, a 20 or 30 second shot instead of like a one and a half to two minute shot would do. And those are things that really do uh, disrupt the cadence of the film for me. And instead of flowing, it just kind of ground to a halt. Hmm. Additionally, like... <laughs> I guess... I love this, like, the setting is phenomenal. We talked about the, the the house that he's in is really a character unto itself. There are these shots, yeah, throughout the whole movie, like, so many times of characters ascending or descending this central uh, winding staircase that runs up through the whole building, which is multi-leveled. And it really serves to tie the film together and show, like, a, a transition, a character is walking up or down the staircase. And I thought that was really cool. And like the banister that you mentioned at the bottom of the staircase is in so many shots. You said it becomes like a, a character itself. And I totally agree. So I think that that's really an epic win. The characters are phenomenal. We already talked about that. And the performances are amazing, you know. I think the story I don't love. I think as a method to deliver the setting, the characters, the performances, it works. And it has real moments of beauty and tension and intrigue, but it wanders a lot. And it's to your point that 
and I agree that the Victorian sort of languidness and uh, reserved nature lend itself to a slower paced film. But I still feel like there has to be a way to do it where it doesn't feel like it gets lost in the weeds. There are a few times where you really examine it and I'm like, what was this five or ten minute section trying to prove? Or like, we've been over this already. And Here, Here's the thing. There really only is one plot point. Yeah. And it could be summed up in five words, which I'm going to say. Yeah, okay, good. But there really only is one plot point, but the plot point's not the point. Mm -hmm. The point is why. And what we see, I mean, it builds to, to to the plot point, but what we see after that is a series of whys, and even before that. Yeah. Right? And so that's why... Pardon the pun. That's why it wanders. <clears throat> There's one reason. Here's another reason. Here's a third reason. And where's the reason behind the reasons? That's kind of the the ending question. Is it love? Is it, you know, kind of a psychopathic, controlling kind of behavior? Is Sociopathic. It... Yeah, kind of thing. sorry, yeah. Um, is it somewhere in between? But at the end of the day, I still just found, and I understand your point, but I still just found that it, it tread upon the same ground too much and it walked too slowly. And I think that you easily could have cropped it. It was about two hours, 20 minutes. Even if you had made it like two hours and five minutes, like just shaved 15 minutes off, a few seconds here, a few seconds there. I think it could have been a much tighter experience overall. Um, so yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. it was, it's a really interesting experience. Between the performance and the visuals, it's like, it can't be bad. It just can't. But I think there were some issues I had with the story. Um, Although I certainly can see that you have good justifications for it, too. I guess it just depends on your tastes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you please cue up the gabber jabber? (laughs) That's literally what I was just doing. I'm going to randomize this again. Really? Yeah, I am. Because I think last week was... No, I do remember... But last week was just kind of, or two weeks ago, it was kind of special just because we had no idea what was going to happen. Mm, very and well. This this time's going to be the same. Okay, ready? Yep. <laughs> ready? Welcome to the Gabber Jabber. This is the uh, part of the show where we reach into the bowels of Canadian Netflix and wrench forth a nugget of suggestion for your viewer. Pleasure. Jabber, jabber. <clears throat> and now after you want me to fade that down again. <laughs> Dude, we're at 55 minutes. Yeah, well, it's just, <laughs> just what happens sometimes. <laughs> it's gonna be really long. That's fine. It'll be the perfect length. Hmm. <laughs> now I'm I'm now I'm just scrolling through looking for Did you not for you didn't have any pre written recommendations? No, I I never do. I just kinda like kind of uh swim through it. Something I've been enjoying tangentially by way of my father, this is not a recommendation, nor is it endorsed by the Good Ship Brothership in any way. But uh <laughs> It's about to be. But the offshoot of Storage Wars, which is entitled Northern oh, Adventures is like it's the B tier alternative to one of the worst reality TV shows I've ever seen. Yeah, um, so it's worse than one of the worst reality shows. Yes. I've ever oh, seen. absolutely. That's what you're saying. Um, okay. 
and it's it's just people going over going and bidding on storage lockers and then basically hashing out the value of those lockers um <clears throat> probably don't watch it i've never <laughs> i've never sought it out on my own but i come home from work sometimes and dad's watching it i don't know why but i really do get sucked into the narrative and i i'm on uh team paul and bogart just for any of you uh storage wars fans out there okay this week's scabber jabber is the drop uh bob oh man saganowski played by tom hardy not bob saget played by tom hardy tends a bar in his cousin's pub and looks the other way when local mobsters use the joint as a temporary bank his simple life takes a complicated turn when he finds a battered puppy he asks his neighbor nadia for help nursing it back to health and a mutual attraction sparks between them However, a robbery at the bar and the return of Nadia's abusive ex force Bob back to facing the truth about those he thinks he knows best, including himself. I watched this movie a while ago, and uh, <clears throat> it's nothing, like, crazy awesome, but sometimes you really don't want a film like Phantom Thread that's kind of taxing. Sometimes Usually, you just want, I don't. Sometimes you just want something you can kind of sit back and enjoy, mm-hmm. and The Drop is definitely one of those it's um, a nice low-key kind of gangster flick with a couple predictable twists and a couple unpredictable ones. And Tom Hardy, as per usual, is fantastic in it. I believe I think he's doing an American accent in it. And his American accent is really good. And, uh, and it's one of James Gandolfini's last films before he passed away. And he plays Tom Hardy's cousin who owns the bar. And uh, it's just, it's just a really nice film, very modestly set in a couple locations kind of thing. And Tom Hardy's performance is just very good, and uh, he finds a dog he loves in it. So yeah, so that's commendable. <clears throat> that's uh, the Gabber Jabber for this week uh, on your Canadian Netflix recommendation, The Drop. Now we're moving on to the album by the Milk Carton Kids, All the Things I Did and All the Things I Didn't Do, and there is no Netflix, uh, you know. No fact, factoids. There's for no this. Netflix factoids for it. That's weird. Cause, I mean, it no, being Wikipedia. an album, I wouldn't really. Okay, I'm gonna that. actually uh-huh. hurt you in some way. Regardless, so this is an album released by the Milk Carton Kids. <clears throat> it came out a, a few months ago. This is gonna be your vague Wikipedia. They put out, <laughs> it came out. A, hang on, that'd be a great band name. It came out a few months ago. They've uh, it's two guys. One of them's first name is Kenneth. I don't remember the Joey. Yeah, Kenneth and Joey. Are their first names? I don't know their last names. They put out a few albums, like about this would be like fourth, fifth, sixth, some, somewhere in there. They're moderately experienced, certainly. Um, two young men. They're a folk band, and they're kind of unique. It, whether you believe them or not is up to you. I think I do. Um, but they said that they started creating this music without having any substantial knowledge of folk music. And then later on, as they found success and people started comparing them to these great folk artists, they were um, kind of surprised to go back and discover that what they were doing is something that had already been done. <laughs> um, and I mean, you, there's certainly a, a case to be made that maybe they're just saying that as like a bit of showmanship or whatever. But that happened to me with my band. Sure, yeah. People started saying, oh, you guys sound like the killers. And I was like, who are the killers? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true. So basically... What you have, if you take it at face value, and I do, is a very cl- classical, like classic folk-sounding group who, at the time, had really no memories of classic folk. Although, of course, now they do because they've been in the they've been in the spotlight for for quite a few years at this point. Um, 
so I first stumbled upon the milk carton kids over two years ago. I don't know how exactly, but Is I did. Is it a factor of that documentary? Oh, yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> so, um, Inside Lou and Davis, I don't know if we've talked about it or not. Right. It was to do with that, right. wasn't it? Yeah. So, that's one of my favorite movies of all time, and one day we'll discuss it. By the Coen Brothers. Yeah, by the Coen Brothers. It's it's a, a flooring movie. I absolutely love it. It's great. But there was a, a live show that was done that was music and artists inspired by the music of Inside Lou and Davis, because the, the film is heavily dependent on folk music. And one of the bands performing was the Milk Carton Kids, along with... Like Marcus Mumford and Mumford a bunch, and sons, yeah. bunch of other people. Yeah, loads. Of and I was like, these guys are really good, the milk carton kids. So just before my Alaska trip, which was in, in June of 2016, I downloaded one of their albums called The Ash and Clay. And I decided that I was going to kind of listen to it along with, for the first time, Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers by The National yep. while I was on my trip. And those two albums have really stuck with me in a deeply sentimental way. And this goes goes on to what we were saying earlier about how music has the power to transport you back to that place where you first really bonded with it. Mm-hmm. Because every night, I had a bit of trouble sleeping on the ship. Um, and every night I would listen to basically the complete album before I would fall asleep. And it was really this amazing time because I was at this, this place geographically I'd never been before that wowed me and was very something that still inspires me for photography. And I'm... I hung out with these new friends. It was weird. I had a surrogate group of friends for like a week and I saw these amazing places. And so ever since I've had this this deep nostalgic love for the milk carton kids um, to the point where I think I would admit that I elevate them probably above where I should because I associate them with like one of the wildest and best uh, weeks of my life. So going into this album, I was kind of hoping that they could recapture some of what made the Ash and the Clay an awesome album because it is a, a beautiful album. Um, the two of them are really phenomenal guitarists. They each know their place historically in terms of rhythm and lead. They have, uh, they're very dependent on harmonies and this album is really no different in terms of their central tenets. So I guess when I listen to folk music, the main things that I look for in terms of like, was this a successful album is... Like, what does it tell me in terms of stories and how does it make me feel? Because a lot of folk music is, you know, more of a linear story. That tends to be a, a trend with a lot of it. Especially you look at things like in Inside Lou and Davis, it's often just basically a story in words. And it's it wants to convey this very specific folk music feeling that a lot of you who are fans of folk music will know. And a lot of you who aren't as well. So I guess opening the opening tracks of this music... That I, or of this album that I listened to really did blow me away just in terms of like they've done it again I listened to it when we were up north a few weeks ago when we were in Manetteville um, I had just downloaded the album and I was listening to it kind of as we wound through these rocky northern highways um, the highways weren't rocky but you know what I mean <laughs> and it has a the very Canadian shield. yeah the Canadian shield and it has this mm. very strong start the album does I think with this nice rhythm and undertow um, and a beautiful staggering of guitar and melodies, just all the things that's made the band good in the past. Their writing is evocative. It's maybe not world-class. I would never call it world-class, but it combines a nice sort of prose with a little bit of storytelling and a little bit of conceptual stuff. And it just... uh, it really did make me nostalgic for these things I've never experienced that they were singing about. 
And I think sometimes that can be the, the mark of good folk music too, is it really puts you in a place that you were never in in the first place, right? Um, however, as I got further into the album, after the first four tracks, I guess put it this way. If you're listening to an album casually, there are usually songs that you always play and songs that you usually skip. And sometimes you go, I'm going to do a hard listen to this album, right? And you listen to all of it. But like most of the time you're like, listen, listen, skip, listen, 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 skip. So after the first four tracks, which I think are all great, there are three tracks that are all skips for me to varying degrees. But I think this album suffers from one of the worst mid-album slumps in like recent memory for me, if not of all time. Um, you get this this song. Um, <clears throat> do you know the, the name of the song? You Broke My Heart. That's what it's called. And it's just... Wait. Oh, okay. No, never mind. It's just a solo by uh, Joey, I think. And one guitar and like this really does that wandering melody mm-hmm. is, is there a vo- vocalization that yes okay yeah sorry he's like you broke my heart right yeah 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 um <laughs> and in some ways it has kind of a 1950s like bioshocky aesthetic that has an amount of appeal but mostly it just really interrupted and destroyed the rhythm the beautiful rhythm that the album had built up up to that point and I didn't really like it. Um, Blindness is the next track, I think, that comes after that. And it was also just very, very <laughs> slow-paced. This minor and diminished sort of droning <laughs> harmony that really slowed it down further for me. And then after that, we had One for the Road. One more for the road. One more for the road, um, <laughs> which I put down here. <laughs> I've tried to think of a nicer way to describe it, but I can't. It's the only way that I can think to put it is that's masturbatory. <laughs> it's just like this droning, like they sing one for the road, one more for the road. I don't know what, what does he want one more of? I'm unsure at that, at the beginning of the song, I was unsure. In the middle of the song, I was it's unsure. Like, it's like they, After the three minute like interlude, on, I was still it's unsure. It's like they went on rhymemaster.com and went... Rhymes with road, one syllable. And then, <laughs> like, and then road, toward, toward goad, <laughs> Towards the end of this 47 and a half minute song, I still don't know what he wants one more of for the road. And they take five uh, minutes as an oh instrumental my break. Gosh. And the guitar's like... I've never been so upset in my entire life. <laughs> um, and that said, after that, and that's a pretty big that... The album does pull itself together with the... Uh, I forget what the next track is. I should have written... Actually, I could just look on my phone. But the album does pull itself together, I think, in a pretty big way. And it has a, has a decent ending. So in some ways, it was still a successful album. It was a good song album. You know what I mean? It's, I'll continue to listen to lots of songs from it for many years to come. And uh, Big Time is the song that comes after One More for the Road, which is kind of this swinging song, like, we're going to have a good time, is whatever. Is that the, um, like, kind of major, major song? Yes, one? yeah. And it's just, like, a fun like, song. most of the album's all minor. Yes. And then you get yeah. this one kind of barging onto the scene that's finally a major song. Exactly. And it really did break the um, the Great Depression that had descended over me for the previous couple of songs. And I think the album ends on a high note with those final three tracks. And so overall, I think it's a good album. And like blindness could be much worse. That's why I said skips to varying degrees. It's not horrible, 
but it's just three songs that if you're listening to the album casually or if I was I would certainly be skipping so it's a it's a mixed bag it's that's it's as simple as that it has some phenomenal songs I think uh just look at us now younger years nothing is real like morning in America I think these are all very 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 good songs and songs that I'll continue to listen to for the indefinite future the fact that it slumps in the middle means that I may not think of them in context of the album. The Ash and the Clay, which, by the way, okay, look at me. We need to review The Ash and the Clay in the future. I think it's a much superior album in every way. <laughs> Why do I have to look at you to hear that? I don't know. Okay. Um, I think it's a much superior album in every way. <laughs> Certainly they delivered in some parts. This is not a hopeless thing. It's not a bad album. It's not even an okay album, but it's an album that... Um, made me want to cry at, at some points and not for the right reasons. <laughs> it it kind of feels like you're trapped on an incredibly long escalator. Just for the just for uh, one more for the road. Does he want a cookie? A be- an adult beverage. Uh, does he want an adult beverage? Um, is that your review then? Yeah. My my prior experience of the Milk Carton Kids was mostly your like not I wouldn't say incessant. I'd say borderline incessant recommendations. Yeah, for for me to listen to. I think they're very high quality. The Milk Carton Kids, and I'm like, no, 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 I don't like folk music. As I'm, you know, making an album of arguably folk music. Sure. But the the thing is, I don't really listen to folk music ever. Um, and and I would listen. I did listen to some of like the Ash and the Clay, that sort of thing. And Monterey, and it, maybe. It was always kind of. Um, <laughs> like it's like almost like they're too good to be playing folk music. They are. Like, I, oh, I didn't even say that. Their harmonies are so close, and the guitar playing is so sophisticated. They are incredibly and, skilled guitarists, and like, like technically, whoops. technically dazzling. <clears throat> like a- anybody would listen to it and go, like, yeah. "Whoa, they are phenomenal guitarists." Even There's if no you've, doubt even about it, that. if you've literally never touched a guitar in your life, you would listen to it and go, "Whoa." And the interludes in "One More for the Road," as annoying as they are. Are also impressive, even though that that in that in no way makes up for it. But it's that. So it was that for me, paired with the um, tribute band syndrome, where you can have bands who are going and kind of redoing like folk music stuff, stuff that's already been done. They're revisiting an era, Mm -hmm. or like say Greta Van Fleet is like the worst example of tribute band. That's a very extreme example. Yeah, exactly. Where they just they sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. It's a borderline copyright infringement. Exactly. So, and you, 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 you have tribute band syndrome, and then you have good new old music, right? You know, and and I at first assumed Milk Carton Kids were the former, but now I think they might be the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, de- uh, definite guitar chops. <laughs> like, we've we've touched even... on that. But I really can't stress enough, if you're at all even interested in the guitar, Pedro, I don't know if Pedro ever listens to this podcast. He certainly has But if Pedro's listening to this, dude, you have to listen to this album. You have to listen mm-hmm. to this, and you have to listen to everything else the Milk Carton Kids have ever done. Especially if you're at all inclined towards the acoustic guitar, which is their, you know, their native tongue. 99% of the album. <clears throat> yeah. The acoustic guitar work, especially, like, the lead work, is, like, astounding and, like, offensively good. You cannot make a valid complaint that it's not good. No, you, you, it's objectively amazing. And, as I was listening to it, I was thinking, this singer, Spencer, is that his name? He no, has two of them. 
Well, yeah, I mean, Spencer's Ken- in... Kenneth and Joey, I believe. Yeah, but the lead singer. Spencer, uh, why do they think Joey, Spencer? I think? I, think I could Joey be totally Lindy. wrong. I'm Whatever, sure it doesn't matter. One of them. The lead singer's voice is really good. Yeah. He, he has a great voice and a great delivery. He doesn't have that affected accent <clears throat> that a lot of, like, folk singers or country singers now have. It really does sound like he's singing with his, just, his, his voice. And mm-hmm. his voice does kind of have maybe a bit of that um, kind of cracking high timber to it that like old country singers would have and by old i mean like hank williams Mm -hmm. that sort of thing but it feels incredibly natural and it doesn't feel like he's trying to sound retro or or old or anything like that and and i think that that could be something that would be easily overlooked is that his voice is very good and not only does it suit this music it doesn't sound like he's trying to suit this music um it's, he's, he's just still, singing. Yeah. Um, these guys need to score a Western movie. Yeah. Oh, my word. I didn't word. think of that. As I was listening to the album, I was like, these guys would slaughter the score for a Western movie. Unfortunately, not many of those are being made now. But if that ever became a possibility, they would be the duo I would recommend to 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 do that. Uh, lots of, like... Um, just kind of sweeping grandiose uh, songs on the album and just the instrumentation they use, which is kind of like almost flamenco guitar. Yeah, a little bit. But blended with kind of a symphonic vibe. Uh, Exceptional sound engineering and recording. So do you think, to go back a second to the the blending of... uh the techniques do you think that's what keeps them from seeming like a copycat band the fact that they are a melding pot of a few different styles no under i don't the, under I don't the facade so. of one type of music i think that they they sound like what a lot of old musicians were trying to achieve um i just think that they have the wherewithal and the technology to to grasp the that goal more firmly than those artists were able to do mm-hmm. um the engineering and recording is phenomenal. Like, and and the balance of um, symphonic music with mm-hmm. folk music and finger picking guitar and that sort of thing is really really nicely done. Uh, there, the album has high and low points. I don't think that it's like amazing. It's not. It's probably not going to make it into my best albums of the year or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> my low point was one more for the road as well. Every which, time I get to it and I'd have to listen to it for the review, I'd be so sad. <laughs> it just drags on and on. It's very bland lyrics. Yeah. And I cannot stress enough, the writing on this album is incredibly clever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's a certain thrill when you're... Uh, for me, I've written a lot of songs. I've written literally hundreds of songs. And uh, and obviously, writing like modern quote-unquote songs rhymes are kind of a big deal and when you hear rhymes that you didn't predict that in the previous line or stanza or whatever it's kind of a weird thrill and that happens a lot in the first couple tracks Mm -hmm. like uh, what's the first track i can barely not remember the title just look at us now just look at us now there are some incredible Incredibly good lyrics. Mm-hmm. It almost reminds me of Tom Petty, 
Like this middle yeah. America idyllic growing up kind of thing mm-hmm. that they do at, you know, moonlight and, uh, and, a be- and a beautiful girl and falling in love and your best friend and, and, uh, you know, driving your first car home late at night, blah, 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 all that sort of thing. It's yeah. Uh, so the writing is very good. So, but a low point for me is definitely <clears throat> one more for the road. <clears throat> But my high point isn't even just look at us now, the opening track. My high point is the closing track, which is a different kind of timber than the rest of the track. It does have a very strong ending. It, it's it's somewhat Sinatra-like in its presentation. And it, and it kind of deviates from that folk thing and becomes more of the kind of crooner genre of music. Mm-hmm. But with lyrics that are, I'm sorry far better than anything Sinatra ever wrote that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, it, just a beautiful vibe. It just murdered, for me, that closing track, and I don't know if it was just the time and place that I heard it in, but pretty much murders the rest of the album. Interesting. Um, I think, I think it's really, really exceptional. And, uh, and, and, blends a lot of like time periods and genres and styles together in a really um unselfish way Mm -hmm. overall i think i think that the the album is really good i think it's it is somewhat samey in the middle i think the tracks do kind of blend together in the middle no doubt about it yeah i think the tracks do kind of blend together but overall it has great writing uh, really good recording. Really like the playing is incredible, mm-hmm. um, and it's folk and country. Even that's well done. And there's one track on it that's just straight up country, and yeah. it's the don't do don't And it's a good song, and it's a great song, and I really enjoyed it. Um, which which proves to me more that modern country just sucks, and that I don't actually hate country. But yeah, um, it's it's completely worth a listen or three. And it's worth giving a chance, even if those are not genres of music you gravitate toward. And if they are genres of music you gravitate toward, you owe it to yourself to check this out. And if you like Johnny Cash, mm-hmm. Sinatra, Bob Dylan, if any of those are appealing to you, then all the things I did and all the things I didn't do are it is is worth listening. And also, I would say, um, if you listen to it and you like it, but you're like, eh, Please just, we got to talk about it later, but go listen to The Ash and the Clay, because it's, I think, a superior album in almost every way. But in saying that, if you listen to this album and you go, eh, send us a message. Yeah. And let us know what you think. You can message it to us on Instagram, at brothership.pod, or you can email it to us on Gmail, uh, brothership, or thegoodshipbrothership at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, just let us know what you thought, even if you listen through to, you know... The album one, the one time kind of thing, and you got distracted halfway through because it dragged a little bit. Uh, just shoot us, a, shoot us an email or a message or whatever, and just let us know what you thought, and we would be more than delighted to to read it out. If you have suggestions, stuff that you'd like to hear us review and talk about, please let us know. Uh, we're always hungry for new ideas. And we did, uh, we did that poll on underappreciated movies, and I was really interested to hear some of your uh, feedbacks. And I kind of want to look into a couple of those um, that you guys said and maybe check them out because there are a couple I certainly hadn't heard of. 
And I'm I'm really pleased. I'm very happy that you listened to it and that you enjoyed it because you've been frankly very adversarial of a band that I think is so benignly skilled <laughs> for like the last well, two years. Just, it was it's one of those things where they just it was the perfect storm of like yeah they're slightly too good, which I know is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. But like they're just slightly too good to be playing folk music. <laughs> And uh, and I felt like at the time all the good folk music has kind of been recorded, and uh, nobody's really doing it justice now. All the artists who are trying to do folk are just tribute bands, and nobody's really recording new. Sorry, folk music. Sorry, Jason's just bumping. <laughs> that was an absolute accident. But yeah, that's fine. I hit the space bar earlier. Okay, so. This is a long episode. Sorry, but next, not, not really sorry. Next week we'll talk about Magnolia. Two weeks, but yeah. Next episode we'll talk about Magnolia. I don't. What else? So no. Here, here's the thing. I want to talk. Oh, okay. Oh, whoa. Okay. Can I nominate one? Maybe. Can we do Animal Farm? Because it's under 100 pages, and it'd be a really interesting discussion. And we haven't done the book for a while. We could do that, but I just like to flag up for for episode ideas. We have a couple. We want to stray a little bit from the, um, from the format we're currently in, where we record or where we review. Sure, I'm eating licorice right now. <laughs> it's a really tough time for me. Where we review <laughs> two things in an episode. I like to do some retrospectives and reviewing like one person or one collective's collected works. So. We'd like to do an episode on Quentin Tarantino, the director of um, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Jack Bill Chained, Kill Bill, The Hateful Eight. Something similar to what we did, because we did this when we discussed uh, the, spir- the spiritual journeys of Kendrick Lamar. I'd like to revisit that for a few different things. Um, I'd revisit love- that format. Yeah. I'd really like to do that topic on Paul Stewart and Chris Riddell. Um, Riddell. Riddell. Who... Are the who's the author and the and the illustrator for the Edge Chronicles, which is a series that we really enjoyed, a book series we really enjoyed when we were children, and still now, as I reread one of them recently, I didn't talk about that. Nope. Um, so yeah, let us know, let us know what you think. If you have any interesting topic ideas that maybe stray a bit from the beaten path, we also like to do Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson, although we are doing a lot of his uh, <laughs> yeah, back catalog, one. yeah, including <laughs> next week. Um, yeah, so there's there's one in the books. We'll talk about Magnolia, and the other one you're going to have to wait for our announcement because we don't know yet. And as always, message us with any ideas at all or criticisms or whatever encouragement <laughs> that you have. <laughs> this will probably be up <laughs> tomorrow, I hope. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening if you've made it this far. <laughs> Shout out to Caleb. Yeah, shout out to Caleb. Thank you for listening, dude. Thank you, man. It's appreciated, and and uh, and I'll see you tomorrow. And Harrison and Jonathan. We have a lot of people who are enthusiastic. Got, yeah, we got people who are actually tune into us for like every episode and actually last, listen to these. Last episode was our second most listened uh, episode in our history, <laughs> next to the albums of 2017, which is bound to get more. Oh, okay, and one more thing before we go, let me <laughs> leave. 
I was thinking about this today. We really, really, really need to do a Albums of 2017 revisited before it's Albums of 2018 season, which will be not too far off now. And just go back and see how we reorder it and what we because think of those albums now. this is going to be one little teaser for all you guys. I was listening to Sleep Well Beast by The National, um, which actually did end up being our album of the year. But I was thinking I'm 80% sure that's my favorite National album now. Interesting. Interesting. So... That's where I'll leave that for now. But we need to re- we need to discuss that again because my opinions have certainly shifted a lot, and I suspect that yours have as well. Um, I'm Jason, and for myself and my brother Grant, we thank you for your dedication. Crunch it, and we will talk to you guys next time. Yeah, we love you. When you think about it, it's kind of crazy that like anybody listens to this at all. Quite a few. I, I actually can't believe that we have like a hand, a very, like five. More than five. A couple people who listen to like every episode. Yeah, that's very good. I But like, just think about that. There are people who willfully download and listen to us for like an hour plus. We have a sustained listenership in France. <laughs> I don't but know. who are these people? It has to be. There has to be someone in France. Either that, or there's some bot over there who's just chugging through. Why? To what end? I don't know. I don't think bots listen to podcasts. I don't think they don't bots get are in France. I don't think podcasts are in France. Explain oh, that. Oh, that's that's probably racist to somebody. Je suis une baguette. What? What does that mean? I am a baguette, or I am a wand. Je m'appelle baguette. Or I am a wand, or I'm a stick. I was talking to Violet, and it turns out a baguette is either a baguette, or like a wand, or a stick, or anything like it's that. It's just some kind of like like a oh. like a straight, narrow object. Yeah, I guess. Interesting. Including, but not limited to, the, the bread. The bread, yeah. which is amazing. But additionally, sticks. And is wands. a baguette the best kind of bread? Uh...